it's really interesting once you tar- start talking about Sabbath, reading about it, thinking about it, it's like you just start noticing a lot of different things. So this, just the last couple of weeks, um, I've just noticed um, a lot more uh, references to being busy, to being in a hurry. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, Devon and I actually both went to a conference in Chicago, and one of the workshops was like this four-hour workshop talking about mindfulness and lean culture. And if we can pull up the slide, some of the two things kind of stuck out with me um, for me during that. Uh, do we have that first slide? Oh, no, okay. Um, so one of them was a quote. It says, understanding and managing attention is now the single most important most important determinant of big business success. So even in business, they're recognizing people's attention is scattered. They're at such a high pace. And so they had um, research from the American Mindfulness Research Association. And on this graph, it says in 1980, there were zero papers published on mindfulness. As you move up 1990, there's three. As you move up to 2000, there were 10 papers published. As you go up to um, 2004 to 2006, there's like 20, 30 studies published. All of a sudden, at around 2007, 82 were published. A couple years later, 467 were published. All the way up until last year, 842 studies on mindfulness. Something that Google, a lot of huge companies have, have started using in their workplace. And this is not what she said, but my thought was, what year was the iPhone invented? <laughs> 2007, smartphones came into being and bam, all of a sudden, everyone's curious about how do we begin paying attention? How do we begin um, grounding ourselves? So I saw that. I also got in the mail um, a, the Magnolia Journal. Anyone else get that? Chip and Joanna Gaines. So I pull open, you know, a letter from the editor. Joanna Gaines always like writes a nice page. And this quote stuck out to me. Many of us live in a culture that keeps us on a treadmill, always hustling toward what's next before we ever have a chance to enjoy what's present. And then all too quickly, it becomes what's past. I think if we let it, the world and its steady stream of noise could consume us until the day we die. And the whole section was talking about this year she had been Um, really focusing on being present, on looking up at what was going on around her. Um, Another interesting thing, right in the middle of our series, we're four weeks into this Sabbath series. I was talking with Glenn last night, and he was like, you know, the more I study this, the more I think we could have done a year series on this and never still had plenty of information and not not been able to dig deep enough. So um, what's interesting is the Bible Project, we've shown some of their videos, um, up here, their animations for different books of the Bible, um, and they just are very short, excellent videos. And they um, have a podcast, and he said he had begun studying the number seven in the Bible, and it blew his mind so much um, that their whole next series of videos on that, and they're like six podcasts, five, five or six podcasts, hour long each, into seven and the seventh day throughout the scriptures. And what he said, this stuck out to me, he said, this is the Sermon on the Mount, talking about Sabbath. Think of the seventh day as the kingdom of God coming into heaven, or coming into earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' whole point is that it's arrived now. What you thought was only for the future can happen now. It's the person of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, and it's broken into the present. The Sermon on the Mount 
is living as if we behave like we will in the new creation. Which I loved, obviously, because we just finished the Sermon on the Mount. But it just seems like there's culturally this explosion of recognizing in all across culture, across belief system, there's this boom in saying, hey, things are going too fast and it's not going well for us. And on the flip side, there's this explosion in people talking about rest and Sabbath and even mindfulness and things like that in um, secular settings. One thing that was really interesting to me, um, I, this actual Sabbath um, topic that we're, we're looking at Bridge Challenge Church in Portland series, I actually was in, um, in February, I was actually at church for this teaching, and it surprised me because the guy, A.J. Swoboda is his name, and he uh, wrote an excellent book called Subversive Sabbath, but he, um, he stood up, and before he got started, he said, hey, can I just pray with you guys? He's like, I've noticed something that every time I go somewhere to speak on the Sabbath, every time um, I've talked about it in my church, it just seems like there, the spiritual warfare grows. And he, I was so surprised. Here I am, you know, probably the only Adventist in the room going, what? Like, what is this guy saying? So I did want to, um, I thought that was a really good point, and I do want to pray uh, real quick before we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you um, so much for Sabbath. Thank you so much um, that we can rest in you, that um, the work is complete. We thank you for that. And God, we just ask you that any spirit of darkness, any anxiety, any worry, any perfectionism, um, any baggage around Sabbath would just be cast out. And that today that we could experience a true Shabbat, a true stop, a true ceasing of all the things that worry us, all the things that um, we want, all the things that we think we need, that we could um, set that aside and experience your shalom, your peace, um, your love, and your joy, um, and that we could just envision that coming toward us and experience true rest in you as we talk some more today in your name, amen. So what I hope to spend the rest of the time doing is giving you kind of a smattering of information, of stories, thoughts, perspectives that have meant something to me as I've researched, as I've listened to different things about the Sabbath. A big chunk of it is from A.J. Swoboda's talk um, that I heard in Portland. Um, he just had so many good things to say. And the reason I believe this will be helpful, because by and large, um, most of us grew up with some knowledge of, of Sabbath. Um, and we're here on a Saturday. So we have some kind of knowledge about that. Um, but what I think sometimes we've lacked is um, the true and deeper meaning behind Sabbath. And so I just want to share what's me been meaningful to me. And I hope it's meaningful to you. We've, as we said, we're spending six weeks. This is the fourth out of the sixth. And we've still barely scratched the surface. So I'm excited um, to look deeper into what Sabbath means. There's this old story, who knows if it's legend or if it's true, but there was a group of families that were traveling west on the Oregon Trail, and um, it, they got to a mountain range, and they needed to get through this pass before winter. And so they were nervous, and so they got into kind of an argument, because one half said, you know, I don't, I don't want to be stopping for Sabbath anymore, we don't have time for this, we need to get going, we need to be going um, through this pass, or we're going to get snowed in the winter, we could even die. And the other half said, you know what, I think the rest is helpful. You guys go on ahead and we'll, we'll travel at our pace. Just take a guess who got there first. <laughs> the people that stopped for a day of the week actually got to Oregon um, 
first, which who knows if it's legend or not, but I think it um, represents where we are culturally. We, we live in such a culture that says more. If you could just get up earlier, if you could just be enough, if you could just answer your emails faster, if you could just get your kid in more programs, if you could just do this, this, and this, then maybe you'll get to where you're going. If your marriage could just be this way, if this could just happen this way, and we see that left and right, and I think that story is such a good example of there's something to be said about rest. I was listening to, I think it was Planet Money podcast, and I guess Japan is having this big crisis because um, they're worried that they, their, work, their workforce is shrinking. And so they're worried in 20 years they won't have enough people to sustain their economy. And so they brainstormed, what could we do? And so the first thing they've done is federally mandated a cap on work hours. So what you think, what? Like why, if you need more production, you're worried about your economy, why would a bunch of economists say, let me, let me make a cap on work hours? I think they capped it at like 55. People were working like doctors basically, like 90 hours, 100 hours a week, just these insane hours. Japan actually um, is one of the most individualistic cultures. They um, have restaurants now for single people most people my age aren't getting married. Housing is made for single people. Um, there's actually a lot of the most progressive, seems like a poor word, but complex um, AI sex toys and items are all being invented so that you can have virtual girlfriends, virtual situations. So Japan is in this crisis of we don't have any children. Um, and so what they decided is let's cap the work hours and maybe if we cap the hours, people will, start have, will relax and they'll start having babies again and in 20 years we'll have a workforce. It's a huge problem. Um, Marva Dawn in Keeping the Sabbath Holy, W-H-O-L-L-E, says nothing less than a command has the power to intervene in the vicious, accelerating self perpetuating cycle of faithlessness and graceless busyness. The only part of which we are conscious of being our good intentions. Peterson, Eugene Peterson, describes the Sabbath as uncluttered time and space in which we can distance ourselves from our own activities long enough to see what God is doing. If we are not able to rest one day of a week, we are taking ourselves far too seriously. Um, in his book, Abraham Joshua Heschel, um, he wrote this kind of, if, if you read, if you start researching Sabbath, it's the first book that comes up. It's this Jewish rabbi, I think he died recently. His daughter forwards the book. And she says, some religions build great cathedrals or temples, but Judaism constructs the Sabbath as an architecture of time. Creating holiness in time requires a different sensibility than building a cathedral in time. We must conquer space in order to sanctify time. And as her father goes on in the book and says, on the Sabbath we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. Six days a week, we seek to dominate the world, but on the seventh day, we try to dominate the self. A.J. Swoboda opened with a story. Um, he was at a barbecue with this friend who had been an admiral in the Navy for 40 years. And he knew that he was talking about the Sabbath, so he started telling him, he's like, hey, listen to this. This is an interesting phenomenon in military history. 
If you compare the veterans from World War II to those that fought in Vietnam, by and large, the men that came back from World War II were happy, the abuse rates plummeted, drug rates plummeted, national happiness went through the roof. It was like our culture was on this euphoric high. We had defeated evil. The happiness was so palpable that they all came home and had a bunch of kids with their wives and we called them the baby boomers. Compare that to Vietnam and it's a very different story. Depression skyrocketed, PTSD sky high, drug abuse, one of the biggest heroin epidemics our country has ever seen. Abuse in families skyrocketed, many didn't have children. And the friend told AJ, why do you think that that happened? And there's one theory, many theories, obviously there's big differences between those wars, but one of the theories is about the why the vets were so happy coming from World War II and in Vietnam they had such a hard time re-entering. Because when the men got done fighting from Vietnam, they literally got on planes and were back in their living room within three days. But when you compare that with World War II, they didn't get on planes and come back home. What did they do? They got in boats, and for two months, they traveled across the Atlantic and the Pacific to get home. And you know what you do when you sit on a boat with nothing to do for two months? Is that you grieve. You reflect. You tell your story with people who've been through the same thing that you've been through. And you cry. Now, there's tons of reasons that these two wars could have been different. I mean, there was protests with Vietnam, um, unsure about the meaning of what they had done, etc., etc. It's a very complex thing, but I think there's something to this story. When we look at the world right now, I can't think of a better metaphor for what we have today. We have no capacity, no time to just stop, no time to grieve, no time um, to listen to stories. Abraham Heschel says, the higher goal of spiritual living is not to amass a wealth of information, but to face sacred moments. We have no idea how to face sacred moments anymore. You scroll through Instagram or you listen to the news and it's like, man, I don't know which to be more sad about, the heroin epidemic, the, all the mass shootings, um, all the immigrants in Syria and in these conflict areas. Before you even have a chance to think about what that might be like and feel like you're on to the next thing, on to the next terrible thing going on. It used to be that we rested, even as a culture, we used to have blue laws. Rest was legislated, nothing was even open. You had no option but to stop. Nothing is like that anymore. We're in a 24-7 world, a 24-7 news cycle. We never know how to stop, how to be. We're totally exhausted. I wonder if we've forgotten something that God really cares about. And the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, um, I heard a kid's program, they called them the 10 best ways, which I really like that. Um, the literal translation means the 10 words, the 10 things that God said. And it's really interesting because there's only one thing, the word in, um, Glenn and I were talking this, about this last night, um, this word kadosh, which means holy. And in the creation story, there's one thing that God makes holy. And let me tell you, it's not you. It's not humanity. Even though we know the story, sometimes I think we think it's us. It's not the ocean, it's not the elephants, it's not walking sticks or the stars. 
The only thing that God called holy in the creation story is a day, and it's a day of rest. Abraham Heschel again says, the mythical mind would expect that after heaven and earth have been established, God would create a holy place, a holy mountain or a holy spring whereupon a sanctuary is to be established. Yet it seems as if to the Bible, it is holiness in time, the Sabbath, which comes first. Kadosh, holy, is a word which more than any other is representative of the mystery and the majesty of the divine. It is used for the first time in the book of Genesis at the end of creation. How extremely significant is the fact that it is applied to time. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. In the commandments, it's the only one that begins with remember. It's like God knew what he was talking about. I wonder if God knew that this would be the one that we would be likely to forget. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it's for everyone. It's for you. It's for kids. It's for employees. It's for your group. It's for animals. One of the reasons the earth is getting trashed is we never give it a break. Four to six earths, as we said before, would be needed to... Um, if, if the whole world consumed like Americans did. We would need four to six Earths. This is for the immigrant. This is for everybody. You know, when you read ancient literature, it just seems like everybody wanted to be at war with the Jews. But you know why they probably loved fighting them? Is because the Jews were the only people who res- refused to fight one day a week, even in war. They would only fight defensively not offensively. Have you ever thought about that? That the Sabbath is even for your enemies? Have you ever wondered how you could give your enemies a break? Take a Sabbath. Maybe they're tired of fighting with you too. The Sabbath is for everyone. It's subversive. It's a crazy idea. AJ talks about how teaching on the Sabbath, he had never had more people leave his church. He preached on open relationships, on weed, on gender, on sexuality, really upsetting topics. Never had more people leave than when he talked about Sabbath. And he believed that it's because Sabbath steps on every idol that America worships. Money, accomplishment, productivity, materialism. You know, if you're a pastor and you break any of the, the nine commandments, you know, like if you kill somebody, if you steal, if you lie, If you're cheating, you'd lose your job. But as a pastor, if you didn't take a day of rest, you'd probably get a raise. A lot of times we're more faithful to cliches than we are to what the scripture says. People say things like, I'm not gonna take a rest because the devil never rests. Like since when has Satan become our role model? (laughs) When you look... (laughs) When you look at Jesus and God in the Bible, they are never once described as busy. The only spiritual entity described as being busy in the Bible is Satan. In Job, he said, it said, I've been running to and fro over the earth. That's literally the mission statement for most human beings. And it's a sign of the, it's, it's basically a sign of the mnemonic. Oh, running around, not knowing where to go. And many times when they're casting out demons, when Jesus casts out a demon, it says that the demons ran around looking for somewhere to go. They don't know where to rest. Remember when they get thrown into the pigs? 
They can't find a place to rest with nowhere to go. Another thing people say is, I don't need to rest because I'll rest in heaven. When the answer is really no, you'll only get there faster. So the question is, what if the Bible really mattered? What if rest was really important? And what if we believe God? What, what if we put aside the fears of this weird legalistic Jewish Adventist thing from a long time ago? And it turns out, as you start looking through the Bible, you can't get two pages in without talking about Sabbath. Adam and Eve, they're there. They, they, God works for six days. They rest for one. And it's crazy when you compare this creation story to other creation stories. Um, a lot of times people will say, wow, they're all very similar. It must just mean the Jews probably copied the people around them. But that just seems weird. Like maybe, maybe they all knew that something happened. How in the world did they get so similar? So the better question is, how are they different? Three things that are unique to the creation story in the Torah is number one, it is the only one in which everything that God makes is good. Do we corrupt good? Yes. But everything that God makes is good. It's like he can't help himself. He says like, he speaks it into existence and he's like, wow, that was really good. <laughs> wow, I really like that son. Good job, me. <laughs> that was awesome. Like all through the story, he just says, this is good, this is good, this is good. He cre even, even, the devil he created as this angel of light that turned dark. Yeah, we corrupt it, we mess it up, but God only makes good things. Everything that God made is just another way to draw us into his goodness. The stars, the sunrise, mangoes, the ocean, all draw us in to his goodness. The second thing that's unique to the creation story that sets it apart from other creation stories is that it's one in which women are made in the image of God. It's the only one. In all the others, women are mistakes, they're errors, they're dirty, or something is wrong with them, but you read the Bible and in page one, God looks at women with dignity and inhumanity and says, hey, you're made in my image. Anyone who says that the Bible is down on women hasn't really read it. God is so good to women. <laughs> so much so that when Jesus raises from the grave, it's the men who are in a room terrified and it's the women who first encounter him and are the first to preach the gospel, the good news, the first Easter sermon, he is risen. So I wanna say, I'm obviously a woman, so I wanna talk to the women for a second. There's a lot of social pressure right now, I think. There's a lot of things going on in our church that are frankly embarrassing, but... In the Adventist denomination, there's a lot of things going on. And culturally, there's a lot of things coming from the other side, from a, from a progressive side, that just make it really confusing. That want to say that, hey, that, you know, the Bible's down on women. Like, why do, you, why do you believe that stuff? But one, I want to say the Bible is a set of stories about humanity's failures over and over and over. That's the same story. Like, you could read one story and pretty much have every story in the Bible. Humanity fails, God comes and approaches them in a new way. Humanity fails again, God approaches them in a new way. So yes, there's stories where women are treated terribly by main characters. But there's also stories of stealing and incest and rape and idol worship and mass killings. But when you read about God's interaction with women, God and Jesus, 
God always treats them with dignity and respect. Jesus was basically funded by wealthy women. Some of his closest friends were um, Mary, Martha, these deep friendships. So much so that he appeared to them after the, erect, after the resurrection. And when he's dying, think of that. He's dying, weight of the world, literally on his shoulders, in severe pain, and his thought is to make plans for his mom. So if there's a way that you can quiet this kind of conservative liberal chatter that has so many things to say about women and just realize that the Trinitarian community has a deep, deep value for women. That's something that's so unique about the creation story. And number three, this is the only creation story where God gives you a day of rest. The Sabbath is found nowhere else. We literally worship the God that invented the weekend. God made Adam and Eve on day six and then the Sabbath on day seven. I don't know if you've ever connected the dots, but you realize that Adam and Eve's first full day of existence was a day of rest. They would work later, but all they had to do when they came into being was enjoy what God had made. This is the first picture of the gospel story. Some of us don't believe the gospel yet because you think that if you can just stop cussing, stop looking at porn, stop coming to church or start coming to church more, be nicer to your kids, don't lose it on them so often, be kinder to your spouse, stop drinking, deal with your sexual stuff, then God will love you. Because to work and then be loved by God is not good news. Good news means that you rest in the good news of God through Jesus and out of that rest, then you can get some work done. You know what kids do for nine months before they're born? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) They sit in mom's tummy for nine months doing nothing. And you know what they do when they come out? A whole lot of nothing. In fact, they make messes. You feed them, you clothe them. If you pay for school for them all the way through college, I mean, you got a good 20 years of no, no work out of your child. None. It'll still be like four more years before Theo can do any big chores. And they'll probably just be to like teach him something. But can I point out that that's how all of us started? This is literally how God set it up that you begin with rest. You don't have to work to get rest. You're at peace, and that's how you got the work done. Eugene Peterson just passed away recently, um, translated the uh, Bible into the message version, but he um, always kept a Sabbath, and he said, this Hebrew evening morning sequence, because in Hebrew, the day begins at night, and then you go, it ends the following night. But in the Hebrew evening morning sequence, conditions us to rhythms of grace. We go to sleep and God begins his work. As we sleep, he develops his covenant. We wake and are called out to participate in God's creative action. We respond in faith and work, but always grace is previous and primary. We wake into a world that we didn't make and into a salvation that we did not earn. Evening, God begins without our help, his creative day. 
morning, God calls us to enjoy and share and develop the work that he initiated. In, Jewish, in the Jewish tradition, fathers would get up early and they would come to wake up each of their children and they would give them a spoonful of honey so that they would never forget the sweetness of God's rest. Sabbath is, is really hard work, um, which sounds funny. But the reality is nobody, nobody just happens into the perfect Sabbath. No one just happens into um, the perfect rest. If we decide that we want to take Sabbath seriously, it takes a little bit of intentionality. It takes a little bit of plating. Um, something I read this week that was really interesting to me um, is that in the Jewish tradition, they eat really simply throughout the week. So very basic food. Um, and so if they see something, which I hope we've all done, or it's just me, but you see something new and you're like, oh, I want to try that. I want to try that new drink. I want to try that, that new, you know, Aldi always has that specialty brand that they are always inventing new things. You know what I'm talking about? It's like black, says specialty something. Anyway, you buy the thing, and the first thing you want to do is, oh, I want to go home and try that tonight. I'm going to make that for supper tonight. What Jewish tradition says is that you buy it, and then you save it for the Sabbath, to truly feast on Sabbath. So what we sometimes call that is pleasure stacking. So you save all your favorite things, and you just do them in a row. And so one of the things that um, I thought would be fun with Fletch and Fell is we always go shopping with my mom on Friday afternoon. And so we went and got those bath bombs, you know, and the, the ones they got actually had like a, a little light inside, right? It, it melted down this morning and it, it, when it touched the water, this LED started like flashing and doing all this crazy stuff. So we got bath bombs. We laid out painting stuff. So we painted right after breakfast. Not hard, but that's not how every Sabbath goes. But it's something that, oh yeah, the Sabbath, I'm so excited. We're gonna paint, we're gonna do this. Oh, can we use a bathroom? No, 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 not yet. We're waiting for Sabbath. I think there's a lot of creative ways that we can make it a, a day that, is, that we look forward to. It's the most favorite day of the week. This week in um, our books, there's more back there, but in your group, or I know some of you are meeting um, just reading, going through the practice by yourself, going through with your spouse. Um, but this week, the practice is around your phone. And I'm telling you, Sabbath is so hard for narcissists. <laughs> because when you come back, say you turn off your phone or you limit your use in some way, and when you come back, you turn it on and you realize that the world just kept going without you. And it was fine. Sabbath is a scheduled reminder to realize that God is God and you are not. If this is landing on you at all, try it. There's um, some cool features on a phone, you know. I, I think you guys have them on all you Androiders out there. But on the iPhone, they've actually made it pretty prominent where um, you can swipe to the side and it'll say, you know, that anxiety-inducing number. Like, oh my gosh, I was on my phone for how many hours this week? <laughs> the average actually on across all smartphone users is two and a half hours a day. Um, the average for millennials is five and a half hours across all smartphones. 
So one of the challenges of thinking, um, something that I started when I heard about it just a few weeks ago, is um, you can either turn your phone all the way off, which to some of us that's not possible, we don't have jobs that allow us to do that. Um, or if you're single and you wanna like meet up with people, that kind of ruins it if your phone's off. Um, but another option that I started this week even is in that screen time section, um, there's actually a downtime button. And you can set for each day of the week downtime. And you can choose apps that you want to work. So you can still get messages. You can still get phone calls. Um, but it just puts everything in downtime. So I started it where 6 p.m. Friday night, my phone goes into downtime. And it doesn't come back until 6 p.m. Um, tonight. And so it still works. You can still message. It's just basically a dumb phone. It takes your smartphone, turns it into a dumb phone. So that's another idea to talk about. Um, in your groups. If you really want to get close to and or hate or judge everyone in your group, one thing you could start out with by doing is just doing the swipe and everyone sharing how many hours they were on their phone on average per day of the week. <laughs> then we'll all be shamed into being better. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Maybe that wouldn't, that, maybe don't start there. Um, but I think it, it would be a great accountability if you were moving forward in your group. I think, um, a lot of the time, the problem is not that God is silent. It's that we're always... It's that we always have the radio on. We always have the podcast on. We always are scrolling. We get a minute in line, and oh, I'm bored. But if you really do turn your phone all the way off, you get this beautiful Sabbath rest, and then when you turn it back on, it, it lets you know you're east of Eden again because it shows an apple with a bite taken out of it. <laughs> um... To end, Jews kept the Sabbath in concentration camps and in hiding. And the Nazis, when they figured out how important the Sabbath was to the Jews, um, they gave them the most food on Sunday so that by the Sabbath they would be totally out of food. They figured that if they could disrupt the Sabbath, they could destroy the heart and the spirit of the Jews. There was this old journal article by this Nazi guy. He's writing to his commander, and he said, quote, We've learned that if we can disturb the Sabbath of the Jew, then they lose all of their confidence and hope. Because whenever the Jews keep the Sabbath, it's like they get their spirits back. Last one by Abraham Joshua Heschel. The solution of mankind's most vexing problem will not be found in renouncing technological civilization, but in attaining some degree of independence of it. In regard to external gifts, to outward possessions, there is only one proper attitude, to have them and be able to do without them. On the Sabbath, we live, as it were, independent of technological civilization. We abstain primarily from any activity that aims at remaking or reshaping the things of space. This is our constant problem, to live with people and remain free, to live with things and remain independent. Let's be a people who get their spirits back every week. Let's be the people who create the cathedral in time every seventh day, who push back, who resist, who stop Shabbat the culture we live in, and practice eternity for a day. Live the Sermon on the Mount. Give our enemies a break. Live at peace with one another. 
Let us embody the kingdom of God every day, but with an intentionality on Sabbath that can only happen when we truly stop, settle in, and rest in the grace of God. Jesus, we thank you for our rest in you. We thank you that the way that you literally designed the universe was that we come into the world out of rest. We thank you that that's still your plan for us. That you still, the good news of Jesus is that you accept us exactly how we are. We thank you and we praise you and we honor you today um, by stopping. By stopping and worshiping you and reflecting on you. And we thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves. That as culture is beginning to notice the deep truth that you knew all along, that we're not made for hurry, we're not made to be busy, we're not made to be distracted, that we're made for rest. And out of that rest, we do all of our best work. Thank you again for who you are in your name, amen.